0: we're going to do now is, is consider the question. Um, I'm going to record this as well because I know the person actually put their name on the question they're not here this evening. Uh, so I know that they'll be uh, listening later on. So hi on the uh, recording. Uh, and then um, uh, we're going to sing a song and then there'll be time for questions. So if you have any questions or comments uh, as we go through then, uh, please do uh, think of them for later on. <coughs> So we've got our question. I say it's going to be a a tough answer, I think. This one, probably the toughest of the three. Why did God make us if he knew that we would sin? But I want to start off with a different question. Uh, What is the most important thing in the world? What is the most important thing in the world? Some people might say love, or happiness, or peace, or joy, or health. They would say, if you've got your health, don't they? But the Bible's unmistakable answer is God. God is the most important thing, if you could describe God as a thing, if you like. He is the most important being in the whole universe. He is good, holy, righteous, loving, kind, powerful and gracious. He is absolutely amazing and the most important person in the whole universe. It's so funny then, isn't it, that as a species we tend to spend most of our time talking about ourselves, If you think about it, as we talk to one another, most of our conversation revolves around ourselves. It's a bit like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or the Great Barrier Reef and turning to the person next to you saying, what are we having for tea? As though you're just ignoring this wonderful, amazing thing right in front of you. As a species, even though we know deep down that God is the most important thing, we try and make everything about ourselves. We do it with God and we do it with each other, don't we? We make it about ourselves. You've ever had that conversation where you tell someone uh, that you're leaving a job or that you're leaving a relationship? What's the first question? Is it me? Is it something I've done? Even conversations that are about us, we we try and make about ourselves or about other people we try and make about ourselves. As though their decision was primarily about you. We make ourselves the centre of things. I think that's why probably we might answer things like love, happiness, peace, joy and health being the most important things. They're things that we want for ourselves, aren't they? We make it all about us when actually God is the most important. Well, why am I talking about this as we look at this question? Well, we have a tough question in front of us this evening. Why did God make us if he knew that we would sin? And the temptation is going to be to make it all about us. You know, it's all about our free will. How could God do this to us? When actually the answer is all about God. So before we ask why God made a world knowing people would sin, we need to look at God himself. Why does God make anything? What's his motivation for doing anything? And that's our first point this evening. Why did God make anything? If you think about it, we've got to answer this question before we answer what comes next, haven't we? And again, the Bible's shocking answer as to why God made the world or why God made anything is that he did it for his own glory. He did it for his own glory. More specifically, the glory of his son, Jesus. So if you look in Colossians chapter 1, if you've got a Bible there on your seats, Colossians chapter 1. But it's actually on the back of your notice sheets if you don't know where Colossians is. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. I'll read that last bit again. All things were created through him and for him. The answer as to why God made the world is that God made the world for Jesus. It was so that his son would be glorified in the world that he made. So I exist, you exist to bring glory to Jesus. That's the purpose that we're created for. It's long been known, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question. You never get past the first question when people quote it. The chief end of man, that is the ultimate purpose of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're here for, to bring glory to Jesus. And not just us, everything. The cosmos, the stars, the trees, the oceans, the sky... All is there to bring glory to God, and especially to his son, the Lord Jesus. And in all things that God does in history then, after the creation of the world, he does it working for his own glory, the glory of his son. That's why he does whatever he does. Let me give you two examples, just to show you from scripture. So why did God rescue the Israelites from Egypt? Well, they were in slavery, God heard their cry, He showed compassion, didn't he, on the people? Yes, he does. But that's not the ultimate reason that he does it. Again, I've got Psalm 106, uh, verses 7 and 8 on the back of your notice sheets. I might just put verse 8. I'll read you 7 and 8. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them... For his name's sake, that he may make known his mighty power. Why did God rescue the Israelites? Well, he rescued them for his own name's sake, for his own glory, to display his power, we're told. Perhaps that's not the answer you are expecting, really, as you think about why God would rescue his people. But again and again, think about the Exodus story. God does it so that they might know that the Lord is God. That's what he does it again and again, it's for revealing himself. Second example: why does God forgive our sins? Because He loves us, and he does. It. We've been singing about God's love, but there's more to it than that. So Isaiah 43:25. Okay, you think it's on the back of your notice sheets. "I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins." So even our forgiveness is for God's glory. He blots out our sins for his own sake. God does it for his own glory and praise. He does everything for his own glory. Now, there are probably a couple of legitimate questions that I'll deal with here briefly before we see what that means about tonight's question. The first is, does that make God an egomaniac? If God is working for his own glory all the time, does that make him an egomaniac? Well, my answer is no. That doesn't make him an egomaniac. When we ask others to worship us or we make ourselves out to be great all the time, we're bending the truth, aren't we? We're not reflecting the truth. We're not the centre of the universe and we shouldn't expect it to be treated as though we are, should we? The thing is, though, that God is the centre of the universe. He is the greatest person in existence. You cannot overpraise God. You cannot make him out to be greater than he actually is. It's impossible. When we make it all about God, we're actually reflecting reality. When we make it all about us, we're actually reflecting our own delusions of grandeur. So when God does things, he makes it all about himself. Not because he needs an ego boost, but because it reflects reality. It shows the truth. If God made it all about someone or some, uh, something else... He wouldn't actually be reflecting the true nature of the universe, would he? That as Paul puts it in Romans 11, for him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So God is working for his own glory and that actually reflects the way things are. It's, it's truthful for God to work for his own glory. And yet within that working for his own glory, there is another, there's another there's an person centeredness and other person centeredness In that the Father is working for the Son's glory, the Son is working for the Father's glory, and the Spirit is working for their glory too. So it's not a selfish seeking of glory, if you like, as God does it, but a gracious seeking the glory of another, but within the Godhead. So it's not God seeking the glory of another as though that's not reality, but actually within himself, he brings glory uh, to the other persons of the Trinity within himself. So there is love actually at work here, bringing glory to the other, looking out for the other within the Trinity. So God's not an egomaniac as he does this. He's reflecting reality, and there's a lovingness to this, is other person-centeredness. The second question that sort of follows from that though is, does that mean that God doesn't care about us? And the answer is that actually God deeply cares about us. Because in fact, God showing his glory and us seeing his glory is actually the best thing for us. Actually, God showing and working for his own glory is good for us because as we see God's glory more clearly, we're transformed into his likeness. We see in scripture that as we look to Christ, he restores us more to what we were supposed to be, he makes us more human. So it's not like a playoff between God's glory and our good. Actually, both of them work together. We are saved because God is working for his glory. We are adopted, rescued, justified, sanctified, and will be glorified. All because God is working for his glory. So God does care about us. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. But that love for us is not his primary motivation. Actually, his own glory is. And that's okay. Because that's the best thing that God can do. Work for his own glory. So, how does that help us answer the question? Well, if God made the world to glorify his son, and God works all things in history to glorify himself, and God knew that the fall would happen, the question now becomes how is a world with sin in it more glorifying to Jesus? How is a world with sin in it more glorifying? to Jesus. You see it cannot be that the fall took God by surprise. It wasn't as though he couldn't have done something to stop it or that it somehow messed up his plans. Actually the Bible teaches that nothing can thwart God's plans. So actually the fall in this sense must be part of the plan and what's the big plan? Well it's actually for God's own glory especially his son's. So what is better about a world, this is going to sound like a weird question, but what is better about a world with sin versus a world without sin when we think about God's glory? Well, let me give you three suggestions just from thinking this question through. The first is that we would know God as creator, but not as saviour. Adam and Eve knew God as creator at first, but they didn't know him as redeemer, as saviour. They only knew God in one guy, so to speak. He was creator and they were creatures. Whereas now, actually, we know so much more of God, don't we? Even though they walked with him in the garden, we know him better. His glory is better displayed. Why? Because we know him as our saviour, as our redeemer. Jesus is a hero, if you like, in a way that he was not in the Garden of Eden. In this scenario, Jesus is the hero, the rescuer, the saviour of the whole world. What bigger title could you hold? Now, he always had it in him, if you like, but we couldn't see it in Eden. We can see it now. We can see this amazing side of God that would have been totally missed had the fall not happened. So that's the first thing. We know God not just as creator, but as saviour. The second thing is we would know God loves us, but not how much. We would know God loves us, but not how much. Before the fall, I'm in no doubt that Adam and Eve knew that God loved them. But I would argue that actually we know better how much God loves us. Why? Well, two reasons. One, we've seen the full extent of God's love on the cross. And the cross could not happen without a world with sin in it. The self-giving death of Jesus could not happen in a world with no death. So we can see just what lengths God was prepared to go to because of his love for us. We can see the glorious love of God in all its fullness. We can glory in it. We can praise him for it. We know more how much we're loved than Adam and Eve did. We know God's love for his creatures because of the cross. That couldn't have been true in a world without sin. Secondly, we have seen the unconditional nature of God's love. So Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We couldn't say that before the fall. We could say that he loved creatures, but not sinners. Without sin, we couldn't see the unconditional nature of God's love. That he loves even sinners even rebels, traitors. So great is his love that he sent his son to die for them. So actually, we uh, know more about God's love. We could sing those wonderful songs we've been singing about coming and saving a wretch like me because of the fall, because of a world with sin in it. And then thirdly, we would know that God is powerful, but not how much. We would know that God is powerful, but not how much. Adam and Eve knew how powerful God was at making things. But we know how powerful God is in destroying things. God will destroy sin and evil. The world of sin will not go on forever. We lived in a messed up world, but it's not God's plan that that should continue forever and ever. We live, if you like, in the middle of the book. The ending at the end has not yet come. We're not on the back page. We live in the middle of the story. The happily ever after hasn't come yet. So yes, the world has sin in it now, but it won't always. In the perspective of eternity, this will be just a breath. God will utterly crush all sin and rebellion, and it will last for eternity. He's already dealt the death blow to evil. He did it on the cross. So Colossians 2.15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Evil had its biggest expression as sinful mankind nailed God's son to a cross. And in that very action, it sealed its own doom. Evil is in its last days. The devil is prowling around because he knows that his time is short. God will utterly destroy evil. So if you think about it, all the evil in the world versus God it is a bit like Andorra versus Russia. Or, or no, even more than that. Uh, one man in Andorra versus Russia. No, wait. One man in Andorra's pet rat versus Russia. Actually, I'm not being accurate, really. It's more like the flea on the back of that rat <laughs> versus the might of the Russian army. That's the sort of comparison that we're to make between evil and God. There's no contest. Because you sometimes get the idea that there's suffering and sin in the world because God and the devil are Equals. Many religions in this world teach the idea of a good God and a bad God fighting against each other, and we're caught in the crossfire as they're sort of equally matched. But nothing could be further from the God of the Bible. He is powerful beyond belief. He and the devil are not equals fighting. God has the devil on a leash. He can only do what he permits him to do. We see that in Job. So evil is no match for God. But again, we could not know this unless there was sin and evil in the world for a time. We could not know God's true power over all who oppose him without people opposing him. He allowed the highest angel to rebel and he still beat him hands down. We see God's awesome power over evil. So to sum up, what we're saying is that without sin in the world, at least for a time, we would not fully know God or his full glory would not be displayed. We would not see the wholeness of God without the plan that God had set in place. We actually see God better now than we would have done if the world had not fallen. So you can think about it a bit in this way, a progression of songs in heaven. So to start with, in Revelation 4.8, they can sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You see that at the beginning. Then when God created the world, they could sing Revelation 4 verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. But now they can sing a new song. Revelation 5, 9 to 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And again Revelation 5 verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and blessing. Heaven couldn't have sung that song in the beginning. Heaven couldn't sing that wonderful song of the Lamb without the Lamb being slain for sin. So we could not fully know God without the circumstances that allow us to see God in a different way. We actually end up in a better position at the end of this world than we did at the beginning. So the new creation that we're going to will be infinitely better than the first creation. If you like, the story of our world is a journey from very good at the beginning, it never says perfect, just says very good, to even better. New creation, perfect, perfection. But we can't get there without the bit in between. And it just so happens that we live in the bit in between, the middle of the book, halfway through the story. We we haven't seen the end yet in person, but we know what's coming and it will be magnificent. And the Bible says that we shall see God as he is. We will know God better than even Adam and Eve did, who walked with him in the cool of the day. But before we finish, that's sort of taken us to a point. But before we finish, there's another issue that we must tackle behind this question. Uh, I think that uh, one of the reasons that the question was asked was thinking about the people who wouldn't enjoy this wonderful future. Not all are saved. Why Would God create a world where that would happen, where people wouldn't all go to the new creation? In other words, thinking about our first point, this is the last one that we're going to look at. Again, a very strange question. How is a world with hell in it more glorifying to Jesus? There's another song that they sing in Revelation. Revelation 19, 1-3. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his saints. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. God here is glorified by his being just and true and by his just and true judgments god is not seen only as wonderful savior but righteous judge now it's hard to think about this but we do all have an inborn longing for justice so think of any superhero films you've ever seen it's not enough is it that actually the person who's been kidnapped gets rescued it's not enough that the plan that the villain had gets stopped we actually need the baddie to get their comeuppance, don't we? We're left frustrated in the film when the villain gets away. I think that's why people like Avengers Endgame, it's just been made official, that's the highest grossing film of all time. It's an end, that's, that's part of the name, isn't it? Endgame. The big baddie gets beaten. And we like that, don't we? We like the goodie more than the baddie. We like it when the baddie gets his comeuppance. It's harder, though, isn't it, when we translate that into real life? But the principles stand true. Just like without sin we cannot see Jesus for who he is as wonderful saviour, without judgement we cannot see God for who he is, righteous judge. And because he is righteous judge, it's not as though anybody is sent into hell undeservedly. The whole idea of God being glorified by this is that He seemed to be a good judge, the best judge, the best judge does not dole out punishment undeservedly. No, the best judge only condemns the guilty and with a punishment that fits the crime. All that said, I believe that God is, as, uh, is not as glorified by his judgment of people as he is by His salvation of people. If he were, then actually we should be equally working for God's judgment in the world. But as it is, we're called to work for the salvation of people in the world. God desires that people be saved and not judged. So in conclusion, what have we seen? Well, the fall of man did not spoil God's plan for his world. The fall was part of God's plan for his world. Because ultimately, this plan was to bring himself glory. And that's okay, as we said at the beginning, the most important thing in the world is God. So if this plan works out for his glory that's a good thing, whatever that means for us. It's hard for us to think like that, but I think that's because we're so used to thinking that we are the centre of the universe. But actually God is the centre of the universe and his plans work out wonderfully for him and for all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus. So if you haven't put your trust in the Lord Jesus, I would encourage you to do that. We're going to sing a song now. Any questions? Yes. Um, What does the punishment of people in hell achieve over and above the punishment of Jesus on the cross? Okay, what... Just repeat that again. (laughs) What does the punishment of people in hell achieve over and above the punishment of Jesus on the cross? What does the punishment of people in hell accomplish over and above the punishment of Jesus on the cross? In one sense, it's the same punishment that's happening. So as Jesus dies on the cross, he's taking our punishment, He's taking the, the, the uh, wrath that we deserve. but he's not taking the wrath of people who will eventually go to hell, because if he was taking that wrath, then it means it's being paid twice, which would be, um, wouldn't be right. So Jesus takes the, the punishment for his people. Whereas in hell, the people there are, are taking their own punishment. What does it achieve? Well, it shows God's righteous judgment. Um, in that there are actually people who are, are, are punished for their sin. There is something that we're really escaping from. It's not just a hypothetical situation that we could have gone there. Actually, it's a real situation that we, there are people who go there. And this is something real and actual that God has saved us from. So I think that, that gives it a slightly different perspective then, as opposed to if there's, there's nothing there. So if you think about the saints that are singing that song in Revelation, um, they're singing about the fact that God has avenged their, their death, that God has actually brought justice to the world. The thing is, though, that I mean, God offers freely, doesn't he, that Jesus can take that punishment for us. And if we turn to Christ, then he has taken that punishment for us. The sad thing is that so many people choose not to. Uh, and take it themselves. I don't, Does that answer? Yeah. If you want to come back on anything with that, then just, yeah. But it's a t- 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 tough subject. Yeah? So was
1: of, um, I'm, can I just you, hold the mic near you? Then yeah. I will have to repeat okay. it. <laughs>
0: did, did God create sin in order to glorify himself and his mm-hmm. son? Okay, God didn't create sin. He allowed sin, which is different. God's not the author of evil. So he doesn't bring sin into the world himself. Um, But he did allow sin to happen. Whatever you think about the sovereignty of God issues, God allows it to come in. Um, Did he allow it to bring glory to his son? Yes, I think he did. Um, Because then Jesus is glorified, not just as creator along with the father, but he's glorified as saviour. So it brings more glory to God in this scenario than if he'd just left us in Eden. Um, I mean, God could have done anything to stop the fall, couldn't he? I mean, we're told that he walked with them in the day. He could very easily have gone and stood next to him. Do you remember the commandment that I told you? Or what about Adam? Adam was just stood there, wasn't he, doing nothing? God could have stopped them taking the fruit if he would wanted to, but he allowed them to do so. God prevents other people from sinning in the Bible later on, but he allows this to happen. I believe it's down to his ultimate motive, that he bring, he's bringing glory to himself. Um, and that's okay, as I was saying in, in the talk. But yeah, I, I think he allows sin to come into the world, not creates sin, but for his own glory, yeah. Any other questions? You can grab me afterwards if you like. a lot to think about there isn't there if you want some good recommendations of books to think about it more uh, Jonathan Edwards on it if you can get anything by Jonathan Edwards about the the, um, he he gives it a big flowery title but it's basically why God made the world Um, there's some good stuff in Desiring God by John Piper um, about it Um, is God any less glorious that he ordained that evil be Um, but there's yeah a lot of stuff good stuff to read on it. But if you want to know a bit more or if you have any more specific questions, you can ask me afterwards.